Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike Morris's Mind Escape. We have episode number 143 today. Uh, we're going to be talking Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, uh, which is Laird Scranton's new book out. Um, you can go check that out. I have the link down below the video. Uh, sorry for anybody that was watching the initial version of this. Uh, we were having some technical difficulties, which I believe we've since cleared up. And uh, we appreciate Laird switching over to a different computer because it does... Uh, seem to be working great now. So, uh, so yeah, check out Laird's book down below. Check out uh, our podcast uh, website, mindescapepodcast.com, and check out our Patreon. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content. We do have one with Laird from the last time he was on up, and we'll be doing another one with him today. Uh, also, uh, check out indrasweb.org, which is our new app that we created so people can discuss these topics freely without worrying about anybody watching or taking stuff down or the usual stuff that you see on all these new mm-hmm. uh, social media platforms. Our social media platform will allow rational discourse and people to kind of go back and forth and not worry about stuff. So check that out. And as I mentioned, if you were watching before, maybe we'll try and get Lair down there when it's up and running. Um, but... Uh, Without further ado, welcome back on, Laird. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Glad to be back finally here. Yeah. Um, it's always a fun conversation to have you on. It's it's definitely an episode when we have you on that I look forward to because you're such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to symbolism and uh, comparative cosmology and comparative you know, uh, stories of ancient times. So uh, your book, your new book, uh, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, starts out with you asking the question, uh, what was the purpose for these esoteric traditions, or what was the reasoning behind uh, continuing these traditions? Uh, so why don't you give us a little bit of a background uh, on that? Okay, well, uh, the way that I learned things about um, the ancient symbolic tradition is by comparing how different cultures understood the same concepts and ideas. Um, and so through that process, I've been able to see that... Um, different cultures retain, have managed to retain different aspects of the tradition. And the two that have done them the best job of, of preserving the tradition intact, from my perspective, are the Buddhist tradition out of India. Uh, there's a co- symbolic cosmology associated with a Buddhist stupa shrine, and the Dogen out of Mali, who are, are a modern-day African tribe. Uh, they also have an unaligned shrine like a stupa. But um, they both claim the way they understand their system is that it was instructed to them in ancient times by somebody who understood um, science that, that we don't necessarily think anybody understood back in the ancient day. And the purpose, from the Dogen perspective of their teachers, their, their teachers had two um, goals in mind for humanity in, in giving us instruction. The first one was to help us understand what our true, true relationship is to the larger processes of creation. Uh, I think the idea was that uh, if we understood what our actual role was, our actual place was, that we might make better choices for ourselves. And the second goal was 
to help foster a facility for discriminating knowledge, which means the, the ability to draw inferences from facts. In other words, this is what a student needs to move beyond their instruction. Uh, this is what you hope a college student gets in college is uh, the ability that after they're beyond uh, working with professors to teach them things, they now have the ability to pursue additional knowledge on their own to research a set of facts and to make a draw a conclusion from those facts. Um, those were the two primary goals, and we can see in the in the symbolic tradition that there are any number of um, evidences that sort of reveal the hand of really knowledgeable, really capable teachers, and that's what the book's focus is on, is on talking about what, what indications do we have here that this really was an instructed system, um, all, all sorts of things to say that it was not just a random assemblage of ideas that someone put serious thought into designing a, an instructed system. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you mentioned like uh, getting an education in college. Well, most of this kind of talk or topics is kind of poo-pooed today in academia. So it's um, do you think it was like that back then in terms of maybe relative being relative to the time where some of these esoteric traditions were kind of taboo even back then? Or do you think that it was more of uh, the normalcy back then and now we've kind of separated ourselves from that? Uh, the Dogen um, say that trying to uh, pass knowledge to someone, trying to instruct someone, is like tugging on wild grass. Wild grass tugs back, and so does so does your average human. It's human nature to sort of resist knowledge. So they absolutely understood back in the day that um, there there's going to be resistance to this kind of instruction. That may have been one of the reasons why it was. Um, there was a secretive aspect to it. Um, mm. But um, there are also indications that there might have been a second group uh, trying to prevent the first group from instructing humanity. We see, you know, at, by the time of around 1500 BC, about the time of the jealous God in the Hebrew tradition, mm -hmm. the, the first word out of the jealous God's mouth is, you will have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. um, which... Um, Commentators have said actually that implies the existence of prior gods. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's because I think that's a huge part of Gnosticism, right? Is the idea that uh, an inferior god created an inferior um, version of some sort of spiritual realm, which kind of ties into your work in terms of there's a material and a non-material, and they kind of do this dance back and forth. But in your book, you point out that the immaterial is trying to catch the material up or trying to connect. Um, and by doing that, they have some sort of incentive. Uh, why don't you explain that? Um, the motivations of the non-material to instruct the material are complicated ones. I had to devote an entire book to trying to lay the foundation for what the perspective of that is. But to, to boil it down um, superficially, there are mutual needs of the material and non-material universe that require um, the non-material to foster a group of helpers, essentially, a group of caretakers. So there's a cycle of energy going on, a cycle in, in, in over time in history where the non-material and the material switch sides and move essentially from the roles of patient to 
uh, caretaker and back again. And so early early in this process, before the non-material side needs caretaking, it invests effort into instructing the material side how to be its caretaker, how to be, um, I think if we were familiar with the, the concept of the yuga cycle, the mm-hmm. idea is that over time, humanity's ability to perceive things non-material gets less and less and less. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. By that same dynamic, the ability of the non-material side to take action gets less and less and less. And so just at the point where the non-material side can no longer take productive action, the material side is in a position where it has no idea the non-material is even there. Mm -hmm. And so there's an incentive to set up a structure for human society that will um, allow us to remember to be cognizant of the fact that the non-material is there and to be able to take action on its behalf. That's the the basic outlook. And so when the two realms are the closest is when you would say there was probably like a golden age or some sort of enlightening period uh, for humanity. Yes, we can think of this as the metaphor is to the concept of a great year. It's to the dynamics of an actual familiar solar year. Mm -hmm. That um, the point at which the connection is the clearest is at the equinox of the year. That's why the equinox is so important in these ancient traditions. At that point, there's the least resistance between non-materiality and materiality. The Dogen actually claim that their mythical teachers were originally non-material and sort of stepped across into the, the material side, took physical form in order to give them instruction. And that happened in sort of the mid midpoint of the last 12,000-year half cycle mm-hmm. of that year. Yeah, the the great year or um, the procession would be what is it twenty five thousand or twenty what is it twenty six thousand at twenty five nine twenty I think yeah, that's it's, what it's it's, it's yeah. pretty close. Um, and in terms of uh, how did the the Dogon did they understand the same thing kind of the Egyptians did in terms of procession of the equinox and that kind of stuff? Is there any representation within their uh, culture of that? Uh, yes, absolutely. The Dogen system is based on uh, a philosophy, from my point of view, is based on a philosophy called Samkhya. It's the underlying, it's the foundation, foundational philosophy of all of the um, classical religious traditions of India. From my point of view, it's the foundation of ancient Egypt. Um, it, basically, every um, esoteric tradition that, that preserves the same set of archetype symbols was... Uh, their point of view came out of Samkhya, and they preserved to one degree or another elements of Samkhya. So absolutely, the Dogen, the Dogen um, have an outlook that ties directly to the Yuga cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have features in their cosmology that are hand-in-hand with ancient Hindu perspectives. Um, and you can, because we understand that this, these are all the same tradition, we're able to cross, compare back and forth, uh, sort of the way that in ancient times they could cross compare different versions of Shakespeare's plays. Once you have confidence that that the original source was a single source, now you can leverage those various representations of it to triangulate in on what was original, what had to have been original. You know, anything that that the cultures all represent the same way has to have been original to the tradition. Mm. Yeah, the Dogon are, you know, super. Uh, interesting when you look into them and obviously read the books that you've read, uh, written on them and stuff like that. Last time we had you on, yeah. we talked about Gobekli Tepe 
and we looked at a lot of like the relief carvings and they look similar to some of the Dogon altar carvings, especially, I think it's the Fox that looks pretty similar. Um, right. So when you look at that, that's interesting. So obviously there was some sort of knowledge being shared at very least. I mean, you could say that maybe they had a hand in construction or maybe it was a multi-cultural effort or, uh, you know, different right. uh, groups of hunter gatherers or whatever the case may be. But, um, also, in your book, you talk about when you, when these two realms are the closest, that things might be popping in and out of materiality through what you would um, liken to, like how you watch a movie and they depressurize a cabin, or they, um, you know, somebody's getting out of a, uh, or getting into a sub and they lock the the hatch and then it depressurizes, you know, like something like that. Is that? Can you explain that a little bit better? Right. The, from from the perspective of Samkhya universes form in pairs and there's a cycle of energy that flows from one universe to the other universe the same way that sand in an hourglass flows from the top globe to the bottom globe now it's not just energy that's flowing it's also mass we know that when we look back when scientists look back on the expansion of our universe what we're seeing is a progressive increase in the ratio of mass to energy we have energy being converted to mass and einstein says when mass increases the rate of time slows down so from my point of view the the essential difference between non-materiality and materiality is a difference in how fast time runs mm. that we experience a much much slower time frame than non the non-material realm does i think they've done measurements with um entangled particles where they have uh, determined that interactions between two electrons entangled with each other occur 10,000 times as fast as the same interactions unentangled. Mm. This is a function of quickness of time frame. Right. Um, so now if you imagine that those differences in quickness of time frame create an obstacle to, to um, our perceiving the non-material realm, Towards the middle range of that cycle, when we can picture the sand in the top globe equaling the sand in the bottom globe, those time frames should equalize. And at that point, it becomes equivalent of an airlock in a sub or the, or an airlock in a spaceship. The way you move from a pressurized atmosphere to a non-pressurized one or from, from a pressurized one into a more pressurized one is through an airlock. You step into the airlock, you equalize the pressures, and then you step out. Mm -hmm. um, effectively, the equinox does that. The ancient Egyptian word for equinox was keper, and keper is the dung beetle who represents the concept of non-existence coming into existence. Mm. Uh, ancient he Judaism. Yeah, I was going to mention. You mentioned that in the book. The uh, was it Yom Kippur? Yes. Which, if we think of that as that means, if we think of that as being referring to the day of keper. It's celebrated at the equinox, and at the end of a, a traditional uh, Passover Seder, which happen, happens at the equinox, they actually physically open a door to the outside of whatever room they're in to allow a non-material entity to symbolically enter. In other words, they're acting out what the Dogen say happened at 3200 or 3600 BC, mm -hmm. was that non-material entities actually moved across that boundary and took action on our behalf to educate us. 
Yeah, I mean, I know the quantum entanglement record. What is it? Uh, they've rec- uh, recorded it at a, th- a thousand miles, I believe. Currently, is where the record stands um, of one particle affecting another particle at a or spooky action at a distance, as Einstein would say. Right. Um, and my- well, weren't they doing some tests on rats, and they were like they were affecting them on the other side of the world or something? I think that's yeah. a study. Was it one rat? If they learn something new, has an effect on rats around the world or something along those lines. Right, that, that if you get enough crows that learn how to do something in one region of the world, there's like seems to be like a, a trigger number that when a certain number of crows know how to do the thing, suddenly crows all around the world begin to know how to do the thing. Mm. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, it's some like uh, young kind of like archetype or collective unconscious type stuff. Um, so do you think that that applies then, that same sentiment that that's how, you know, because academics would just say that the reason why pyramids were built all over the world is that's just what people were doing. That was the trend or that's where the mind and consciousness was at the time. I mean, there's a lot of pushback, obviously, and evidence to suggest that's not the case. But uh, what do you think about that? Well, if you think about it, if you and I each belong to different cultures that where our primary building material is stone, there are only a few things you can do with stone. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of time before we each figure out to try to stack those stones up in the shape of a pyramid. That's a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. So as far as as that extent, you could argue that it could it could very easily be parallel developments. It makes sense that anybody who worked with stone was going to do that. The problem is that there's very complex symbolism that's associated with pyramids all around the world that isn't not doesn't automatically accrue from the choice of stacking stones up. Mm-hmm. Um, that you have cultures that are far distant from each other associating the pyramid with um, a woman lying on her back. It represents her womb. Um, You have cultures all over the world who are associating the faces of the pyramid with star groups that regulate their agricultural cycle. These are things that can't reasonably have been uh, parallel development. Mm -hmm. They are much more sensibly understood as a result of deliberate, uh, a common system of instruction about, um, how the symbols work. Yeah. So my question to you then would be, and we talk a lot about this on the show. I think we might've talked about it even with you in the past, but like entheogens and psychedelics and meditation and these, you know, people that have near death experiences, these altered states um, of consciousness, when that occurs, um, do you think that that's the closest you get to that realm? And I'm not saying you can't do it in normal day to day consciousness either, but um, I guess, wh- when does that happen or where does that happen? How does this non-material communicate with us? And if is there ways to induce that, if you will? Okay. Um, Kabbalism defines um, between a half a dozen and a dozen different classes of what they call mystics. And those classes are defined by the method that the person uses to access this information and it goes it ranges all the things you would expect from vivid dreams to clairvoyance to divination to um you know tossing the eating or mm-hmm. uh to um hallucinatory drugs uh to observing the unusual actions of animals things like that there are on uh, numerous different ways um that people access the information i'll try to explain to you um, physically, how that's represented as occurring. Okay. Okay. Now, I mentioned that with the expansion of the universe, 
we're seeing a progressive change in the ratio of mass to energy, mm-hmm. an increase in the ratio of mass to energy. In fact, during the amount of time that it took for the universe to double in volume, the ratio of mass to energy also doubled, which mm-hmm. is a hugely important observation because it means there's a one-to-one correspondence between this process of energy turning into mass mm-hmm. and what we perceive as expansion of the universe. But the Egyptian perspective is that perception is the foundation of measure. And what they mean by that is, okay, imagine if one night when we were sleeping, somebody slipped into our universe and shortened all of the yardsticks and all of the measuring tools and all the everything so that what we had been measuring as, as say, feet um, the previous day suddenly was shorter than it had been before, Mm. but we didn't know it. If they did that, then it would look to us as if the spaces we were in were growing because every measure we'd measure it by was, hey, this 12-foot room is now a 14-foot room. How could that be? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, you, you actually you mentioned that in your book, though, too, don't you? Like the time difference between the perception of time from the non-material to our perception of time is different, and they have more, they're more on the clock, if you will, or that's the way it seemed from reading your book. Right. Now, another way to visualize this is to think about the speed of light, which is a constant, mm-hmm. okay, that in one second it travels 186,000 miles. Now... If we were to suddenly shorten the duration of a second, the math for figuring out speed is very simple. It's rate divided by, uh, I mean, it's distance divided by time. So if we were suddenly to shorten the amount of the the duration of a second, we would also have to shorten the length of the the distance that light traveled in order to keep its speed the same rate. Mm Mm-hmm. So simply by messing with time, you mess with what it appears to us is the distance the light travels. And so you mess with what appears to us as the expansion of the universe. The At bottom, the perspective is there's no expansion of the universe going on. Everything's the same as it was at the formation of the universe. Mm-hmm. That It's only the rate of time that has shifted. Mm-hmm. The reason it's shifted is because mass is increasing. And so it looks to us as if this bubble is expanding when it's not. All that's really happening is our rate of perception of time is slowing down. And that's why it looks like the universe is expanding more quickly than it used to be is because as our rate of expansion of time continues to slow down more and more and more and more, we look back with our telescopes and we say, hey, things were happening a lot quicker back then than they are now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are actually, we see that rate of expansion happening a lot quicker now than we saw it happening back then um, in terms of, how how it looks to us this bubble is is expanding now from the scientist's point of view 
they're struggling with trying to figure out what possible kind of force could be giving such a push as to actually speed up that expansion rate. It's yeah. not. It's not. What's happening is our rate of perception of time is slowing down. It's as if you were on a, a train next to another train and one of the trains speeds up. The passenger has no way of knowing whether their train slowed, just slowed down or the other one sped up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a, one of like the main that. problems with cosmology because as where we love all this uh you know fringe stuff and you know non-mainstream stuff there the mainstream uh version of that like you mentioned cosmologists are struggling to find an answer to why the rate of expansion is rapidly increasing they don't have an explanation for that and it's hard when you look at they're trying to measure the distance between stuff and quasars with all that stuff it's like a perception thing right so now if we simply postulate that the main thing going on here is because of that shift in, from energy to mass, time is slowing down. All of these conundrums that scientists can't work out evaporate. Mm. There is no spooky action at a distance under the covers for quantum uh, entanglement. There's no such thing as distance in the first place. That, uh, well, there is, but from the perspective we're looking at it at from we're at, we're at such a uh, a distance uh, how can i say this the time frame of the non-material is so much quicker than our time frame that it looks to us as if everything's happening instantaneously but if you were in there for time frame you'd realize it's not hmm. that events are essentially transpiring the same way we expect them to transpire just we're so far removed from it that from our it's like there were uh, they've done studies they, they encountered one um native tribe on an island who had uh, spent their entire existence in a valley between two uh, a set of mountains. And when they were taken out of that valley and they saw off on a hillside a, a herd of sheep, they couldn't believe that these weren't tiny sheep. Mm. They had no sense of the difference in perspective that says these sheep are actually regular sized sheep. We're just looking at them distantly. That's, that's our right. problem with the non-material. What looks like unity to us isn't. It's just 10,000 times or more quicker than what we are used to experiencing. Yeah, I. Um, it's weird because I feel like when you, the older you get, obviously, the more time kind of speeds up to us or our perception yeah. of it. I think that right. more has to do with like the fraction. You know, when you're five years old, all you've known is the first five years. So it feels like forever when you're right. 40 or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, what's where's time going? So um when you look at that, do you think that that's happening on the other side of things or do you think it's like reversed or, um, or I should say non-material. I'm sorry. Just... Okay. Well, the, the underlying dynamic energetically is something called a dipole. A dipole is when you have two opposite poles of energy, they tend to oscillate together and then apart and then together and apart together and apart like a heart beating. And it goes on perpetually. Yeah. And the so, oscillation. Right. Now, from the perspective of the traditions I'm working with, that action of oscillation is the root dynamic of material creation, but it's also the root dynamic of time. If you were to experience time non-materially, I think it would be experienced as an oscillation, not as a vector. Okay. And there's, there are other dynamics of energy that translate oscillating energy into vectors. It's a normal, there are a handful of dynamics of energy that all go together. They relate to something called angular momentum, spinning energy, and they automatically evoke the effects that we're seeing. 
um, the root dynamic of consciousness is that same oscillation. It's the ability to, okay, we know that if you look at uh, an image with just one eye, look at an object with just one eye, you get a two-dimensional view of it. Simply by looking at it with two eyes with slightly different perspectives, you automatically arrive at a three-dimensional view of it, or most people do. Um, same thing with consciousness, that this, by being able to integrate the expanded view of things, which is an overview, with a detailed view of the same thing, which is a de the detailed view, you automatically evoke consciousness. Hmm. So from the Dogen perspective, that one dynamic is the root dynamic of material creation. It's the root dynamic of life. It's the, uh, the processes of life. It's the root dynamic of the universe. It's the root dynamic of consciousness. I mean, and that, it all, all boils down to half a dozen different effects of energy. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when you're looking at uh, your research, how do you figure out, like, how did they know what they knew? I know we've talked a little bit about it on past episodes you've been on, but what was, is there anything that we can really point to and say, these people, you know, the civilization givers, whoever they may have been, you know, do you have an idea where you think they came from or what they are or who they are? The Buddhists flatly say that their most sacred symbols were gifted to them by a non-human non source. Hmm. The Dogen take it another step. They say not only was it non-human, it was originally non-material. And that strikes us as being, that, that can't possibly be true. How can something non-material become material? But if you think about it, the traditional scientific perspective on how particles form is they begin as waves, which are non-material. Right. That the endorsed dynamic of how materiality happens is that something non-material becomes material. And it happens through an act of perception. And my outlook is that that act of perception, which disturbs matter in its wave-like form, net-net, it, it changes the time frame of that, that wave. By inducing a chain reaction that increases mass, it moves what's originally wave-like into something particle-like, the very same way that Wi-Fi takes energetic waves and presents them as images to you on the screen. We remember back in the 90s, we would sit and watch an image form in sections on our screen. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the technology has improved where it's enough quicker that that building of the screen in sections is transparent to us. We no longer see it. And that's strictly a function of how, the quickness of how, how fast it builds. And the same thing happens way, uh, with a collapse of the wave, wave function. It happens instantaneously from our perspective, mm -hmm. but we're converting, we're, we're actively converting from a wave-like source to what we perceive as particle-like. Yeah, that even applies now to gravity in some sense. They, what do they think that it was gravity was produced by particles called gravitrons? Now we know that... You know, we've had Brian Keating on, who uh, is a professor and cosmologist, and he was talking about how 
he they created an experiment to look for residue from the big bang which would be these electromagnetic yeah. waves that would have been like you know from the very beginning of the uh universe's creation right. um so the the science is always evolving with that too but i guess just to to clarify my question is how did they get this like how could they understand such things without particle colliders without satellites without all these wonderful things that we have today they flatly say we learned it from someone who understood it hmm. and so the only difficulty with that perspective because literally every ancient culture in one way or another is saying we either received this or learned it from somebody who understood more than we did right sometimes they perceive them as god sometimes they don't the dogen had the presence of mind to ask their teachers if they were god right and the teachers responded, well, no, we're not God, but if it helps you to think of us as agents of God, that's okay. Mm. <laughs> so do you think these were non-material beings that were popping in and out somehow or somehow sending them the message? You know, like, uh, what was the, the mechanism behind this, do you think? This was material instruction. This was actual action taken in material. In a group of teachers who were originally non-material. Mm. Uh, there's a concept in Dogen culture of the sacrifice of the numo. The numo are their teachers. The word numo combines two ancient Egyptian words, nu, which means refers to waves or water, and ma, which means to perceive. The numo are waves perceived. Um, the word itself is telling us what the Dogen claimed to be true, which is something non-material took material form. And they now there were concerns among their teachers about the bad effects, possible bad effects of contact with them on us. We see the same thing in the, uh, the, uh, the book of Exodus when we talk about Moses on the mountain and the Israelites being cautioned to stay back away, keep a distance back away from the mountain because of the bad effects that might accrue to them if they get too close. Well, the same concern happened here that what is the effect going to be a prolonged contact on us of being around teachers who are at root non-material? Mm. And so the way they limited that exposure was they chose to teach eight students at a time from any given culture. And they it was a global effort. And they would sequester those eight initiates in a remote location provide instruction to those eight initiates who then would return back to their original homeland and pass that instruction on to everybody else. And that's a dynamic, an archetype dynamic of Jung that we find all over the planet. Culture saying, you know, back in ancient times, we had these eight quasi-mythical emperors or quasi-mythical ancestors or um, quasi-mythical gods mm -hmm. who were the bringers of civilizing skills. And culture after culture after culture says it was true. Yeah. Well, Jung, what did he correlate? Uh, or he had the Kabiri, which were connected to Greek, ancient Greece. Um, and actually, the, the whole idea behind this actually kind of reminds me of Plato's theory of forms and like the allegory of the cave and stuff like that. Yep. There's some... Same idea. So, yeah, same, same kind of concept. So obviously, it's not just in the very ancient world where you find these ideas, but also the near ancient world where ancient Greece was still a long time ago, but you know, it's a lot closer. Actually the, the manuscript I'm working on, it will illustrate um, how ancient Greek ties into this and a number of other ancient traditions. Uh, the, 
I'm just finishing up a manuscript now that traces how it could possibly be that the Orkney tradition at 3200 BC in Northern Scotland could connect to the Gobekli Tepe tradition at 9000 BC. Mm. Um, the difficulty on with for researchers on Orkney, the researchers on Orkney have no consensus opinion as to where the first farmers on Orkney came from. Mm. And the reason they have difficulty is because they're looking at the earliest elements that characterize that society in one at a time. And though all of those original elements or many, very many of those original elements that are some of them, which are unique to Orkney in the United Kingdom originated in the region of Anatolia near Gobekli Tepe at around sometime before 6,000 BC. Mm -hmm. There's a, a breed of sheep. There's um, a variety of six row barley. There's um, a breed of cattle. Um, there's a burial tradition. There's a whole cluster of things that happen on Orkney in a, it, with the original farmers that each of them, if you trace them through DNA and other techniques, originated at, in the Gobekli Tepe region. The problem is that if you look at any one of those, it might have made its way across Europe by any number of paths, or they might not have come from across Europe, it might have come by sea, who knows. Mm -hmm. But there are any different number of many many different numbers of paths that it might have taken. And so since the researchers on Orkney can't positively tie these elements to nearby locales in Europe, they have no way of saying definitively here's where the tradition must have originated. Right. Now, the approach I take is a different one. What I do is I noticed that there are multiple clusters involved. There's a cluster of agricultural elements. There's a cluster of cosmological elements. There's architecture. There's ling are there linguistic elements. There are um, cultural ritual elements. Now, it turns out that these clusters moved side by side with each other along a particular path. And when we trace those, I mean, we understand that the cosmological elements couldn't have arrived piecemeal. That would be like saying our theory is that the concept of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost somehow arrived at the Vatican individually and then got reconnected up there. Right. Not possible. Or to say that somehow the letters of the alphabet arrived in the United States individually and we connected them back up. Well, even the, the Our Father prayer, isn't that a prayer to Pita from ancient Egypt that was taken? And, you know, and even a lot of the religious iconography found in Catholicism is found is derived from ancient Sumer. Right. So if the cosmological elements can't reasonably have moved except as a group, mm -hmm. then if we can show that that cluster moved hand in hand with the agricultural elements, we have a basis to say, here's where it came from and here's how it got there. Mm. And that's what the next manuscript does. And through that, we found out, find out all sorts of other linkages, things I was not expecting at all to be able to be linked. Um, roots of the Osiris tradition in Egypt, mm. roots of the uh, ancient Greek tradition, uh, roots of traditions in uh, the lower UK that nobody understands precisely where they came from. Um, all sorts of really interesting stuff falls out through tracing that path. Hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting. I wanted to ask you, too, uh, we've recently had a couple guests on who are very interested in writing books on comparative mythology, where, you know, comparing the stars to, you know, the myths, and there's a lot of 
mm-hmm. similar crossover and and similarities and stuff like that. We've had David Matheson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work and uh, uh, Arthur Copeman's on and. Uh, I was just curious if you thought that there was something about, obviously they had knowledge of the stars and stuff like that, but do you think that the myths that are connected to the stars are somehow connected to what you're talking about, or do you think that's something completely different? Um, They are in some fairly complicated ways. Um, First of all, understand that, uh, this is difficult, in Buddhism, the tradition begins with geometry that's used to align a Buddhist stupa shrine to north, south, east, and west. That geometry, according to the Buddhists, recapitulates how space emerges. It, it pictures, it illustrates for us what the relationship is under the covers of the spatial domains of non-materiality with materiality. Hmm. And essentially, you can think of it as two circles that overlap like this, create a vesica Pisces shape in the center, an almond. Okay. Okay, that's the heart of it. But they begin, in order to plot that, they begin by placing a stick vertically in a field and marking, okay, they, they then draw a circle around that, stri- at that stick at uh, twice the radius of what the height of the stick is. So now you have a circle with a dot in the center of it, a, a stick in the center of it, a gnomon. This is a sundial, essentially. It's a way of measuring time during the daylight hours because right. sun shines on the stick and it points to what time it is. Now, from there, the next thing they do is they every day mark the, the point where the two longest shadows of the day, the first morning shadow and the last evening shadow, intersect that circle. Now, because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, those two points on a given day are automatically aligned east and west. Hmm. If you were to go out and mark those endpoints and draw the line every day for an entire year, you would see the line move uh, northward until the solstice. It would pass through the stick again, move back and pass through the stick again on the equinox and then continue to move southward until the next solstice. It gives visibility to the motions of the sun, the seasons of the sun during the year. Mm-hmm. Now, for in the mindset of the cosmology, the sundial is a metaphor for material time. It, it moves in a vector. It moves in a straight line. Actually, we, we would see it move circularly, but it moves directionally. Mm-hmm. The Seasonal lines oscillate. They move back and forth and back and forth. So not are we only with those figures reconciling the geometry of space between the two universes. We're also reconciling the modes of time between the two universes. Non-materially, it's an oscillation. Materially, it's linear. Hmm. Yeah. The the um, When you look at, like the history of a lot of, you know, what we know or what we know actually as history. Um, do you think that there was this lost civilization, whether it be Atlantis or something else or something we just, there's no name, it's just, uh, do you think that, that these people could have had this knowledge somehow and then passed it on? Or do you think the beginning point or the 
you know, or point of origin, as you would say, or origin point, um, was like Gobekli Tepe? Well, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, but, um, there's a bit more to the answer to your previous question about the constellations, which I never actually made it to. Okay. Uh, okay. During the daytime, we measure time by watching the sun, the motions of the sun. Right. That works fine from sunrise to sunset. And that correlates to material time. But at night, okay, uh, from the Dogen perspective, material time represents the concept of a glimpse. Now, at night, we don't have the motions of the sun to judge time by. And so the way they judge time at night is by the progressive, they, they conceptualize constellations every hour. Mm. Stars that rise above the horizon in an hour, they conceptualize as a constellation. And each hour, they conceptualize a new one. So a person sitting out at night watching those constellations rise above the horizon has a way of knowing what the hour is, what time it is. When Orion rises, it's a particular time. Right. Okay, so those are also reconciling modes of time. Now, the stories that they make up in relation to those constellations, um, it, it's a little more complicated. From a symbolic standpoint, it's, it's really uh, workable to try to represent a concept with an image that we can associate a concept with an animal, like the twitching of a rabbit is a really good correlate for the concept of vibration. Mm -hmm. Or the slithering of a snake is a really good metaphor for the action of energy, how energy oscillates. So images or symbols are, are really workable to represent concepts. They aren't so good at representing processes. And so... What the ancients did was they invented stories with characters in them whose the names of the characters tell us what concept the character represents. And then we watch those characters act out the actions of the process that's trying to be represented. And now we have the full picture of what that process is. Hmm. There's a character in Dogen uh, mythology called Ogo who plays the role of light. Hmm. Um, and the interactions between Ogo and the creator deity ama are the actions of virtual particles this is one of the dynamics of energy that creates angular momentum this is how energies come together so from my point of view the original storylines that related to those constellations related to um scientific processes that were trying to be represented and connected to the the picture that went with the constellation that the actions that orion the hunter carried out relate to dynamics of energy that are pertinent to um, a spiral of a spiraling birthplace of stars associated with with Orion called Barnard's loop. Hmm. So, so now to move, to move from that to your second question, which was, do I think that some of this instruction was done by survivors of an ancient civilization? I absolutely do. My friend, John Anthony West felt that was the case. I think Graham Hancock believes that's the case. But there's a specific reason why I think that has to be true. Mm. Uh, across these eras of time, this 12,000-year half-cycle of energy, the ability to move from the non-material domain into the material domain is represented to only be feasible in certain eras. If we relate, if, if we imagine that half-cycle as being 
compare that to the colors of a rainbow. From the Dogen perspective, it's only possible to think about moving. It's only really practical to move between universes from the color yellow to the color indigo. It's most feasible at the color green. While you divide the last 12,000 years up, if you divide it in half, green sits at the center of that metaphor. And that's the era of, of Orkney. That's the era in which mm. non-material teachers were able to easily move across from the non-material domain to the material one and actually interact. In the era of Gobekli Tepe, which is much, much, much earlier than that, it was far less feasible to accomplish that. And so the instruction that happened in that era almost necessarily has to have come from somebody who is already here, who already understood it. And there are reasons to think that survivors of the cataclysm at the end of the Ice Age were responsible for that era of instruction. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, do you think that, um, so you mentioned that by day, um, we don't need to track anything because obviously it's daytime. You can see what's going on. It's very material-like, uh, which is what light gives us. Uh, but by night, you know, things are a little bit more unclear. And I, your analogy, it's almost like a dualism, not a dualism between mind and body, but a dualism between this material and non-material. And like the daytime right. represents the material, nighttime right. represents non-material. And you're saying that the mythologies that were created were a way to keep time but also um, create these archetypal stories that also correlate to this whole thing also even more importantly the idea that when the sun sets it descends into an underworld mm. is a hugely important clue because what it's saying to us is folks there is a domain that's a part of your everyday life that you can't see. You're only seeing half the picture. This is the story that your driving instructor hopefully communicated to you when you were learning how to drive. Guys, don't mistake the fact that you can see. Don't don't think for a minute that your mirrors show you everything that's there. You can hide a tractor trailer truck in the blind spot. Mm. That concept that there's one outlook on time during the day that's visible to us and another outlook at time that's much harder for us to see is r repeating that theme that there is a domain we don't perceive. Mm -hmm. It's the same domain that is pointed to by virtual particles, virtu uh, not virtual particles, by what are called half-spin particles of matter, mm -hmm. like protons and electrons. Right. These are particles that have to be, whose symmetry requires them to be turned around twice in order to look the same. A thinking person can realize that that could indicate the presence of a blind spot. That we're seeing half the picture of what this particle looks like and the other half is hidden from us. We turn it around once, it doesn't look the same anymore. We turn it around a second time, it does. It's passed into a domain we don't see and back out of it again. Or was it like the Hoff vibration or something along those lines? Now, even more importantly than that, the geometry that's used to align that Buddhist shrine is the geometry of those half-spin particles. Mm. So from the very outset, this is the first exercise that's taught to a Buddhist initiate. The very first exercise points them to the geometry of half-spin particles because it's that geometry that indicates to us there's a domain we're not seeing. 
and that's the domain of the oscillation of the of time, uh, the oscillation of the seasons. Yeah, because while I was reading your book, I was thinking, would it even be possible? Like, you need the teachers, right? Because I'm not, you know, whether I obviously we think that these people were advanced for their time, and I know that academia would probably say the opposite that there has been the slow progression or slow march as you mentioned john anthony west this uh, church of uh progress right. or whatever yep. um when you look at that though like would they have been able to conceptualize this stuff without some sort of visual representation or is it just something that when it's been taught or or whatever long enough that maybe they can visualize it that when you don't have all these you don't have the technology and bells and whistles and everything. You have your mind and you have, you know, right. the earth. And those are the only, so maybe there's more space or. Um, uh, well, through the auspices of the yoga cycle, the whole outlook is that non-materiality is more easily perceived by humanity in certain eras. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say how much of the science of it we were able to perceive during prior eras. But the huge favor that the instructors did for us was they were managed to they they managed to be able to put these really complicated concepts into what ultimately should be a, a very understandable system mm -hmm. um very understandable but this is sort of an indication of the difference in capability between us and and them um if you think that the symbolic system centers on three creational themes how the universe was created, how matter is forms, and how biological reproduction happens. In the ancient view, those three processes are parallel processes. That's not obvious to us. But whoever put the symbolic system together simultaneously described all three themes using one progression of symbols. That's a huge demonstration of capability that is just astounding that someone was able to do that. But that's how much you're, it's possible to reduce fractions and simplify all these concepts that the astrophysicists are struggling through. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be that complicated. One of the last things Stephen Hawking said before he died, one of the last things he wrote was, it's not as complicated as we're making it. Mm. Yeah, we do tend to overcomplicate things, that's for sure. <laughs> hey. I do it every day. Yeah, um, that's what our that's what our quest is as a human is they <laughs> overcomplicate things. Um, you mentioned again. Uh, we'll go back to John Anthony West. Uh, I think it was the second time he was in person on the Joe Rogan podcast where he mentioned that it's our duty to elevate our consciousness through, you know, these initiated mystery or being initiated into the mysteries and that kind of a thing, and then putting in the work. Um, and he also helped. I don't know if he wrote it or co-wrote it, but the. Um, uh, Dead Saints Chronicles, I believe, where there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. Um, do you think that that's the case, that our goal is to kind of transcend this material realm into the non-material via hints and instructions and synchronicities and all these things? Or how do you feel about that? I think that about a third of the way into the energetic cycle for the non-material side, the side that's becoming less material, that they figure out that where the trend is headed is to something that we call locked-in syndrome. It's a situation where a person is perfectly conscious inside their brain, but no longer has the ability to move. It's a horrific yeah, state. It's pretty horrifying. It, 
it, uh, it's like being buried alive. And unless you have a compatriot who knows you're locked in in there and can take action on your behalf, it's like being buried alive. And in the Yuga cycle, there's a span of about 4,000 years where the non-material side, the side that's less material, is in that situation. It's the equivalent of REM sleep when you sleep, where the body disables your physical functions to keep you from hopping all around your room as you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. That's what people experience, sleep paralysis and that kind of a thing. There's a locked-in syndrome was written about. There's a famous book written by a guy who was locked in called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He was uh, thought to be brain dead in France and uh, could still blink his eyes. They thought they were random blinks. But one of his aides figured out they weren't random, that he was trying to communicate. And she set up, you know, she would step through the alphabet with him and say, blink when I get to the right letter. And he would blink at the letter he wanted, and he could spell words. Eventually, he wrote an entire book one word at a time blinking his eyes so non-materially what's happening is about a third of the way into the process the non-material side the one that's becoming less material figures out that's where they're headed to being locked in they need someone who knows they're locked in when they're locked in the only candidate is the material side Hmm. and so but the problem is at the point they're locked in we're for most we're furthest removed from any perception of the fact they're there So what do you do about that? You try to set up a structure for society on the material side that will preserve the knowledge of the fact that the non-material side's there so that certain ones of us will be able to act as um, compatriots for the locked-in consciousness. Mm. So what the esoteric system is doing is it's selectively filtering out the sincere compatriots for that non-material consciousness. It's selectively filtering out the people who are so attuned to and so dedicated to this information that they will be trustworthy as compatriots to the non-material side once it needs it. And down through the ages, that's going to get passed down, sort of hand over hand, to some subset group of humanity that still remembers it's there, and that's all it needs. I only need one compatriot. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, we got a couple questions here from people that are watching live. Uh, History Shift asks, how much can we really tell about Gobekli Tepe since it's between 5 to 10% uh, excavated so far? Um, we can tell a lot from what has been excavated. And it looks as if what hasn't been excavated is just repeat of what has already been excavated likely with different symbols carved. But from my perspective, looking at it, this as an instructional tradition, there, there are reasons to look at it that way. Pretty much every civilizing skill that the Dogen or the Buddhists are saying they received in ancient times made their appearance at in the region of Gobekli Tepe at 9000 BC. With mm-hmm. first, first example of stone masonry, first stone carvings, first domesticated seeds, first uh, deliberate agriculture that we know of, first domesticated animals, first weaving, first pottery, uh, first metallurgy. Mm-hmm. Now, either it's a huge coincidence that one group in one region invented all that stuff all by themselves, or if we're looking at it from my perspective, it at least supports sensibly the idea that instruction was given there in these skills. Uh, we arguably have astronomy, represented there we arguably have 
um, cosmology represented there. Um, so now the, the, the next thing we have, Gobekli Tepe is 6,000 years prior to our first written text. So we have no written text to judge by what was intended by the site. We have to find ways to infer that. Mm-hmm. Well, in the symbolic tradition I'm dealing with, the way that information was conveyed was through, through self-confirmation of meaning. In other words, we don't find a, an idea conveyed once symbolically in, the ori- in any of the original forms. We don't see, see the idea conveyed once. We see it conveyed multiple times in different ways so that we can't mistake what it is they're talking about. Now, what we have at Gobekli Tepe is are more than a half dozen different symbols that each in their own way represent the concept of two non-material and material energies coming together at a location. That's the definition of a sanctuary. We have it in the, the handbag shapes, um, the three handbag shapes, which combine a circular shape with a squared shape. That's the, that's symbolism for non-material and materiality coming together. Okay. We have it um, in the concept of an embrace, the arms that move down the sides of the pillar and, and the hands wrap around the end in the image of an embrace that embraces how those energies coming together are characterized. We have it in two little figures that look like a stylized H when you look at them from a distance, but you get closer and you realize that it's two figures of an elephant. And that's a highly, highly secretive representation of the two energies of the universe is coming together that was preserved in Shingon Buddhism. But you find it met references to it in other uh, brands of Buddhism. Yeah, we talked find- about that last time you were on when we had all those slides with the pictures of the T pillars, and there's that little H on the T yep. pillars. That one's not elephants, but there is the ones. That on the is, t- there's a lot of those. All those have been scraped world. scraped away, though. There was something there on each side of the H, though, right? Because I think that when you look at it, you can tell that there was some something else there that broke away at some some point. Uh, yeah, it might have been, but the one that's on the end of the pillar, next there's a um, a sun glyph shape with sort of a, a parentheses next to it, and there's also a stylized H right next to the, those figures. Right. But that stylized H, I uh, had always considered it to be another representation of the H. Okay. I was posting that image as part of a set of images on Facebook, and you know how when it, Facebook has more than one image, they create a montage and they sort of focus in on certain aspects of the image to present on your thread. Well, what they focused in on, what I focused in on with that H figure was, was the figure of the H. And you could see when it was magnified that it wasn't an H, it was a figure of two elephants. Okay. We know that elephants, there's a breed of elephant that existed in that area of Turkey up until around the late centuries BC. So it's, uh, reasonable that they represented it. But that, that image has huge significance in the symbolic tradition. You have uh, the regular English language style H symbols survived in the Masonic tradition. There's an article from the New Age magazine printed around 1910 that describes what the symbolism of that shape is. And in the Masonic tradition, it represents masculine and feminine energy, energies of the two universes coming together. So yeah. I go back to the we have repeated again and again and again. Non-material and material coming together, non-material and material coming together, non-material and material coming together repeatedly. That that's the the 
unifying theme for me of that site. And it looks to me as if each one of those circular um, areas represented a graduating project of a class of initiates. Mm. They didn't need to repeat that structure again and again and again in in reasonably close proximity time-wise to each other. They, they were not decommissioning one and then building the next one. They built multiples of them up and down the hillside. It looks to me as if each graduating class was expected to produce that. Yeah, and you mentioned the three handbags at the top of Pillar 43 or the Vulture Stone, um, where the big craze on the internet whenever you talk about the stuff is what are the ancient handbags, you know, and uh, right. the mainstream will just say, oh, they were just handbags or whatever. Um, but obviously there's, Louis Vuitton. there's symbolism <laughs> yeah. uh, built into that. And um, there's also the other symbol that's found on, you know, an Aboriginal uh, yes, artwork. Bring that up. That's it's yes. two half circles yeah. separated with a line. Um, right. That also appears in Australia among the Aborigines. Right. So if you right. think that the handbag represents the material and the non-material, then what would the two half circles represent? Immaterial or non-material and non-material kind of commute somehow? I don't have an objective fix on that, but given what all of the other symbols represent, the easy guess is that in some culture it represents the two, the energies of the two universes coming together. Okay. Now there's another level to the handbag symbols that um, when the Dogen priest was trying to explain to the French anthropologists what their aligned ritual shrine looked like, this is a blind priest. He, he fumbled around, reached back and fumbled around in his hut and pulled out a wicker basket that was round at the opening at the top and square at the bottom. Mm. And he turned it upside down and set it on the ground and said, here's what the shape looks like. The One of the terms for the Dogen symbolic cosmology is the basket cosmology. In the Maori tradition, a departmental god named Tane ascends to the gods and refer, returns with three handbags, three baskets of knowledge. Um, in Iraq, uh, sometime after Gobekli Tepe, there was a form of uh, sanctuary called a Chaitya, and the defining icon of a Chaitya was three domes. Mm. So those handbags represent that. There are any number of different ways. Uh, John Anthony West, I, I was discussing this image with him. I said, it's clear to me that that image represents the concept of a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not what it represents. It represents the concept of a house. Mm. And I thought, how do I reconcile this? It's not often that I'm at loggerheads with John Anthony mm. West about the symbolism of something. And I know that he's a person who does not present an opinion lightly. It's always based on research. Sure. So I thought the only answer is there's got to be an umbrella perspective over both. And so I did more research and discovered, yes, absolutely. Many of the same cultures that represent that, uh, to represent the concept of, uh, of a temple also represent it to be the concept of a house. And a house, uh, especially in Orkney terms, is absolutely representative of the same set of concepts. So he was right, but I feel like I was also right. I think that there's a unifying view of it's a mistake to think that a symbol represents one thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely true. And obviously different perspectives bring different interpretations. Um, do you think though, that when you look at, um, 
the handbag thing too that i've heard some hypotheses that possibly um the the bag represents some sort of pre-masonic um uh symbolism or the 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 origin point of you know masonry something along those lines that these these would be the builders of civilization kind of a thing uh yes um okay i talked about the symbol of the two elephants being highly secretive right very highly secretive to the point that you can't find reference to them in india well you can but it's tricky no images don't really survive of them you can find references in china but they were banned by explicitly banned by an emperor around 1100 AD from inclusion in volumes on Buddhism. It survived in Japan with Shingon Buddhism and instructions about how to build a, a little figure of it. I have a, have a figure that was built properly and so forth. Um, that shrine, that figure was only allowed to be housed in portable shrines because it needed to be able to move, be moved on a more, a moment's notice. Well, in ancient Egypt, the earliest form of portable shrine was um, a wicker structure called a seh that takes the same shape. It has a squared bottom and an arched uh, sort of cover top with a, a, a flat place to set things. Um, and all of the later temple structures, all the later sanctuary structures in Egypt are based on conceptually on that original form of the portable seh. So, yes, absolutely, I think that that shape has has later significance for later traditions, um, but it all ties back to that same concept of the coming together of the energies of the universe is defining the concept of a sanctuary. Mm, interesting. We got another question from a friend of the show, Aaron Voot, who was saying, "Would you even consider possibly smoking or doing an uh, smoking DMT or doing an ayahuasca ceremony to somehow meet these immaterial, or do you think that, as you mentioned before?" that interacting with them could leave some sort of negative effect of some sort of, you know, way that we're unaware of. Um, that's one of the methods that some Samkhya mentions as being the way that some people connect to the information. Mm. But you have to understand that only some people are going to connect that way. What about Soma? I, Is there anything in there with this connected to Samkhya? Because Soma was considered a god, but also something that was you know, in, uh, integrated into ritual that was obviously some sort of entheogen, whether some people argue it was cannabis and uh, uh, ephedra. Some people argue that it was mushrooms. You know, there's a lot of different interpretations. One really nice thing about the ancient cosmological tradition is that concepts are build, built, uh, the words for concepts are built in an intelligent way. The Dogen preserve the root syllables of these concepts that each syllable, spoken syllable, represents a concept, and you can build, use them as building block, blocks, mix and match them together to create, to represent larger concepts. Mm. So Soma, from my perspective, rests on the syllables Sa, which is a word for knowledge, and Ma, which rests on the word for perception. So Sama means knowledge perceived. So mm. just from a strictly superficial standpoint, I can infer that Soma connects to the same tradition in ways that I understand okay. because of his name. In terms of, but is that something that you would consider though? And I'm not trying to put you on the spot if you don't want to answer that. You don't have to, you know, 
but I was just because when I when I say that I, I mean I've had we've talked a lot about it on the show. People have seen our past episodes on psychedelics and stuff, and I've right. I've never had a bad experience when I've encountered something metaphysical, whether it be an entity or a downloading of ideas and and things like that. Uh, but in, in you, you you do talk about though in your book that coming close to this other realm could have some negative effects and not to get even more woo woo, but people that have had like UFO experiences and abduction experiences have had like weird burns and, and weird things that have happened as well. Well, ayahuasca, I know um, not everybody has a pleasant experience on ayahuasca that it has a uh, potential to draw a lot of the, a lot of a person's issues out. Mm-hmm. And so I know people who have had fairly distressing experiences using ayahuasca, hoping to to reach the place you're talking about or the part, the place that Graham Hancock talks about with ayahuasca. Um, I personally wouldn't approach the subjects that way because that's not the way I connect to them. Mm-hmm. But there are people who do. Uh, one of the things I'm always interested in is in hearing how different people experience things because so far I haven't found any two who experience them the same way, who come at the, the information the same way. Um, a lot of people who struggle with trying to make sense of how they come together with it, but hallucinogenic drugs, I know is one of the ways that some people are able to do it. I don't expect that it works for everybody. Yeah. And you brought up a point though. And just to, to mention the people that when you don't have a good experience, I don't, I think it's something within you. It's not anything that the compound brings it's 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 a mirror you're you're seeing a reflection of yourself so if you're not in a good place in your life or you've got anxiety you know uh issues that you haven't dealt with or you have addiction issue or whatever the case may be these things come out in the experience so you're you're almost seeing you know you're, you're forced to experience the negative side of the things that are part of your psyche which i think is actually a positive and therapeutic thing for a lot right. of people so i do think that um, there is something to that. Uh, but yeah, the, the weird thing, right, is though, is the DMT entities that nobody can explain. I think that's the one where it's they're looking into more and there's you've got Rick Strassman and Andrew Gallimore and all these guys doing all this research, uh, you know, the Imperial College doing all their research. So um, that, right. we'll have to keep a keep an eye on that for sure. But uh, yeah, I was just curious what your thoughts were on that because I don't think we've ever got The thing is that dreams and UFO contacts the images and words and events that happen in dreams and in UFO contacts, from my perspective, play out in terms of the same symbolism as the system I'm pursuing. Okay. That if a person tells me, can, can relate to me the significant images and significant words and actions that happened in a dream for them, a vivid dream for them, that quite often I can triangulate in on what the that self-confirmed meaning of the dream is in the same way I do it at Gobekli Tepe Mm. that we're getting multiple symbols that tie to the same concept. And because we're getting multiple symbols, we can, we can argue that here's what the message is. Yeah. It's almost like uh, when I go deep into meditation, um, I, I see symbolism. I think that when you're able to calm your mind so much to the point where you don't even know what day-to-day consciousness is in that moment. You are some sort of like receiver or 
blank slate where things can pop in or pop out and you can recognize them because you're not bogged down with all the extra sensory stuff. Well, right. If you, if you think of a dolphin, a dolphin is a, an air breathing animal. It survives under the water for long periods of time, but eventually it has to come back up and take a breath of air. Hmm. That's all there is to it. It has to. Humans are the same way with sleep. So one possible way of looking at the issue of human consciousness is that human consciousness also has to periodically go tape, dip in and take a breath of non-materiality in order to continue living materially. And so dreams are the place where that happens. Hypnosis is a place where that happens. Hallucinogenic drugs may be a place where that happens. Near-death experience may be a place where that happens. Um, I absolutely allow that, that that's a real possibility and that what's going on in those states is a less restricted connection to things non-material. Mm. Yeah, it's just that, uh, you know, it boggles my mind every time I have some sort of weird experience that um, it's even possible that that thing exists because you don't experience it all the time. You know, it's almost like shocking whenever you do have a weird synchronicity or some sort of weird like moment of enlightenment or something where you you put two and two together and you know it's not just pareidolia. There's something to it, you know. So um, right. it's it's sho- right. it's shocking. And I think that when people do research, and I'm sure you've experienced this a lot with writing all those books, that um, when you build off that. Uh, you do come out with something where it looks like your work, where I I would say that based on what we know about like spirituality and these altered states and stuff, there being a non-material realm is very is a very good possibility in my eyes. Right. Uh, one one topic you had mentioned that I had wanted to comment on. You were talking about gravity. Mm-hmm. Now, from the perspective that I look at things, there's okay. One of the really wonderful things about this system is the parallelism of structures. Um, because there's parallelism, we have the ability to infer certain things about processes we don't understand because of the parallelism to a process we do understand. Now, from the perspective, looking at the universes in, in terms of the key factor that's going on here is that mass is increasing and as it increases, time frame is slowing. We have time frame everywhere between different masses of bodies. What's indicated in the tradition I'm looking at is that those differences in time are a parallel concept to differences in water pressure. Mm. That we know that if we have a buoyant object and we take it to the bottom of a swimming pool, it's going to gravitate toward the domain of least pressure. It automatically happens. There's no particle that makes it happen. Mm-hmm. It's a dynamic of energy. That if you have two domains, one that's more pressure pressurized than the other, a buoyant object is going to move to the less pressured one. Mm-hmm. That's how I understand gravity, only using time as the the correlating concept of water pressure okay. that a, an object of mass tends to gravitate that exact same way to the domain of slowest time frame. 
Yeah, gravity is a weird one, right? Though I mean, it's because even science, like we met, like I mentioned earlier, like you said, you know, like there's still contradictions going on to this day, and you know, Newton's idea of gravity is different than our current idea of gravity, and I'm sure that'll be replaced even closely in the future at the rate that we're coming up with all these uh, discoveries. One way of testing my outlook is it implies that if you had two objects of equal mass, say two planets the same size as Earth, that they shouldn't draw together. Mm. Gravity should pull them together. Now, that's a situation that I don't think we've had a practical um, test of. I don't think they've ever had a situation where they had two massed objects that were of the same mass in proximity to each other. Right. Yeah. But that would absolutely be the definitive test uh, because if what we're really seeing is differences in mass causing that pressure-like action, uh, we shouldn't have a gravitational effect between two objects of the same mass. Mm -hmm. So I want to give a shout-out to Alex and a shout-out to Home Mycology. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. Uh, So back to... um, the Dogon real quick. The first person to really interact, was it Marcel Griol? Is that the first person to really get this stuff down? Right. He was the, anth- the French anthropologist, not just any anthropologist. He was the premier, considered the premier anthropologist of Europe. And he spent 30 years with the Dogon, took teams in there every year. Eventually he was personally initiated in their symbolic tradition and granted Dogon citizenship. And when he died, he was given a Dogon burial. And a hundred thousand people turned out for it. Hogan. And the the spiritual leader of the tribe that's called a Hogan or a Hogan, right? Whoa, right. bro. Which is Maurice's last name. Well it's Hogan. And actually <laughs> it's weird because before I even knew about the Dogon, I've been calling uh Maurice Dogen as, you know, just a yeah. joke term. It's like a nickname, <laughs> yeah. But it makes sense now. It's all coming together, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, this this stuff happens, you know. I, I early on in my process, I noticed that that certain references were moving progressively, uncomfortably close to me personally. Mm. That things would play out in terms of words, or in terms of instance, or in terms of attributes, or in terms of whatever of of things that related directly to me or people I know. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, John Anthony West about a, de- a decade ago sent me an email saying, you know, there's a term for the work you're doing. Uh, Schwaller de Lubitz writes about it in uh, The Sacred Science. He devotes a chapter to a concept called the Bridge of Sirah, S-I-R-A-H. Mm. And the idea is that when truth is discovered, it will be found to lie on a razor's edge between two chasms, one chasm symbolic of science and the other symbolic of superstition. He, he John related that to the work I was doing. Well, I wrote him back and I thanked him. I said, you've cleared up a mystery for me because my now adult daughter, Hannah, when she was about four or five years old, drew a picture of me that actually resembles me pretty much. It's hanging on my wall at the moment. Um, And at the top, this is before she knew how to read and write, but at the top, she wrote a set of letters that she insisted was my name. (laughs) And we, we sort of chuckled and said, yes, okay, that's my name. But what she wrote was S-I-R-A-H, and we still have the drawing. <laughs> I, I, I scanned it and sent it back to John and said, thanks. You just, you just cleared this up for me. Right. <laughs> well, it 
the, that trend progresses, it, even to this day it goes on, the trend of these references to play out in relation to me specifically somehow. Yeah. Um, Scarabray Village was discovered when a series of storms hit the island of Orkney Island in the 1850 and uncovered a corner of this uh, ancient village. It was on the land of a land order known as the Laird of Scale. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that that, kind of that's not, you know, I mean, Laird's, I would assume it's somewhat common in some parts of Europe. But yeah, it's. I mean, I don't hear, I don't know if I know I any other Laird's. Laird, yeah. Or any, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I went my entire life, I've gone my entire life with people just not recognizing it as a word or a name. I, <laughs> UK the first time I thought, finally, I'll be in a place where they recognize Laird as a, as a name. No, they expect it to be a title. <laughs> the Laird of the Manor, sort of person so uh this is a landowner title in scotland um so but let's wrap it up here and then we'll do the extra little segment on uh patreon but i i did want to ask you so from doing all of your research now and writing all your books um is there anything that you want to get to or might get to because i know that there's like a you know the the recent news from arc the archaeological world is that uh obviously you know, Graham Hancock was right about the Clovis first being Clovis wrong. And now they're finding that civilization reached there 30,000 years ago. We've also had Dr. Gregory Little on talking about the ancient Americas and the mound builders and stuff like that. Um, right. Do you think that you're going to get to that or does that not fit into this picture or is it just maybe something that um, there's not as much there or something like that? Um, two things where the ancient Egyptians talk about a first time, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, and the Buddhists talk about the first time knowledge was passed to humanity from a Buddha at a place called Vulture Peak. The Dogen talk about a time when humanity was restored to culture. So inherent in the Dogen view is the idea that this is not the first cycle in which humanity has developed high culture. Um if we did it in 12,000 years, we know the history of anatomically modern human goes back hundreds of thousands of years. There's been ample time for this to have happened over and over and over and over again. So it's unreasonable to think that there weren't civilizations prior to the Ice Age. The problem is that the Ice Age creates this um, very intractable block to evidence. And right. if you can't anchor a point of view in evidence, you don't have anything. You, ha- you need to find a way, an intuitive way to say, this has to be true for this reason. Right. And when it comes to anything that occurred prior to the Ice Age, it becomes really, really, really difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. So for my purposes, there's a very slim chance that I'm going to get to positive evidence of what was true prior to the Ice Age. Um, another complication is that the name for one of those ancient civilizations, which is Mu, mm-hmm. um, is a, in many of the languages, the ancient languages of cultures I work with, is a, is a term for ancestor. Mm. So when they're talking about Mu this, Mu that, it's equivocal whether they're talking about a civilization or whether they're talking about ancestors. Now, as a caveat to all of that, I can say that 
the lion's share of what Plato tells us about Atlantis, I believe to be true and correct. Mm -hmm. I believe that he was was giving us the correct picture um, of what the situation was with Atlantis, that there was an Atlantis prior to the end of the Ice Age, that events at the end of the Ice Age were responsible for sinking it. And it's likely that someone from that era out of that same tradition, whether it was from Atlantis or not, or whether it was from some other group related to the same, that era of tradition, was responsible for the instruction at Quebec the Depe. Yeah, and people hang on just the word Atlantis, right? It could have just been some advanced ancient civilization that maybe wasn't even called Atlantis. So that aspect of it could be an invention by uh, Plato. Um, or Solon, or Sankis, or whoever the chain of uh, of. Yeah, I, I don't see invention involved there. I see that what they're representing. I have concrete reasons to believe is accurate. So even the name you think is is even representative? Yeah. Okay. Even even on name, well, the name might or might not be, but um, I can say that what Plato is saying on any number of levels aligns just perfectly with the traditions as I understand them. Yeah. Oh, well, I yeah. agree with you. I was just playing devil's advocate for a second yeah. there. Right. Yeah. He likes uh, to do uh, that. I, 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 <laughs> I have to. Ancient, pretty much anything the ancient Greeks are telling us that they're representing as being historical. Yeah. When I trace it back, I find reasonable perspectives from which they're right. So you were mentioning uh, you're working on a manuscript. So is, do you have another book in the works? And if so, is that uh, connected to, you said, maybe ancient Greece? or? Um, okay, so I have a book just out from Inner Traditions, a traditional publisher. They're a, a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been publishing with them right along. Um, a difficulty is that it takes traditional publishers about a year and a half to put a book out. The material that I'm dealing with is, how can I say this, information is turning up at a much quicker pace than that. So during the, the year and a half it takes them to produce a book, I could easily write and self-publish a second book. Mm -hmm. So the last three years, that's what I've been doing. I've been traditionally publishing one book and then self-publishing a second book. Yeah, your last one was Ganesha, correct? Right. The, I self-published the Ganesha book, and I self-published Seeking the Primordial, mm -hmm. uh, and sort of interspersed with the inner tradition books. And I tried to distance my self-published book far enough not to compete with the inner traditions book. Sure. Shout out to inner, uh, inner traditions. We we like a lot of their uh, published works authors. and their authors and all the topics and stuff like that. We really and there are a lot of advantages to publishing with them. They have a talented staff that consistently have done a really good job producing the books. I don't have any any um, issue with with Intertraditions as, as a publisher. Mm. But the, the choice is either to become so backlogged on books that I don't get to publish material that I consider to be urgent, right, or that I self-publish it in between the, the books they're publishing. No, I mean, it makes sense. And... Uh... We look forward to that as well, and obviously, like I said, I've just your book just came out. What is it? Last week, uh, um, right? You know, the primal wisdom of the ancients, and I read it pretty quickly. It was a good book. It it it, it had a lot of your, um, you know, your older concepts and hypotheses kind of meshed in with some of the newer stuff you've been working on. But was there one thing that you learned 
while writing this book or found out while writing this book that was kind of a game changer that you hadn't looked into before? Um, between, well, uh, that, 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 that's hard to say. There, the, there have been, there have been for me, there are sort of a, a constant series of things that make me go, wow, I didn't expect that was, was going to be true. Right. Uh, with this particular book, this book was more of a synthesis of a bunch of ideas that I have wanted to write about with the other books. The other books are all more geographically focused. Right. Here's how things happened at Gobekli Tepe. Here things happened as a result of Scarbray and Scotland. Here's how they happened for the dog and so forth. They're, they're mostly geographically focused. Mm -hmm. But along the way, there are all these other um, topics that relate to how the symbolic tradition was put together that have always been of interest to me that I wanted an opportunity to sit down and talk about. Mm. And so that's what I was accomplishing for myself with the book was, was an opportunity to talk about how the use of metaphors and the, you know, the intelligent parallelism. If you get into the mindset of the teachers of the tradition, there's huge power in that because it allows you to predict um, when you're imagining, could they have expressed such and such? Um, you're able to predict in certain ways how they might go about expressing it. Mm. Um, so that would probably be the the main um, message I would I would say from this book is getting into the mindset of how this information is being delivered, and as a consequence of that, understanding that it was some heck of a person group with teaching skills that put this together. They had to have been really really capable, especially given the fact that they were clearly focused on a future audience that was removed from them by thousands of years. A metaphor doesn't work if you're not sure that it resonates with the person you're giving it to. And so their answer to not knowing specifically who their audience was or what they would relate to was to frame everything in terms of multiple metaphors. Mm. Hope one of them would hit. We're going to say it this way. We're going to say it that way. We're going to say it the third way. Maybe one of those three ways will resonate with the the people who are discovering it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap it up here before we do the quick Patreon session. I just want to say thank you again for your time. You've been super kind and uh, you're one of our favorite guests. Um, and I know I say that, but you know, there's a few people where I actually do feel that way where I'm excited to hear what they have to say. And, and, and um, I think that when we have these conversations with you, I, I learn far more than I put out oh, yeah. there, which I don't always feel all the time, but I definitely feel with you, which I appreciate. Um, I, I appreciate how knowledgeable you guys are. You you approach these interviews from a from a, a, a body of knowledge, so you're taught you're able to not just pose a a rote question. You're thinking about the question and thinking about the implications of the question, and thinking about the implications of the answers, and that's not always true with interviewers well we appreciate that as well we'll take that as an endorsement so um but uh seriously though so check out laird's book uh primal wisdom of the ancients i have the link down below to all of his books uh scarabray's awesome uh point of origin you can go through the whole list there's a whole bunch of them that uh you'll you'll just find fascinating if you like this interview um and uh anywhere you're on facebook right so that's the one social media platform you do you do use Facebook is the easiest place to find me. I have an author page at innertraditions.com and I have an author page at simonandschuster.com. Uh, easiest place to find me is on Facebook. Mm. 
Shout out to uh, friends of the show. Shout out to Martin Ferretti. Shout out to History Shift. Shout out to Brothers of the Serpent. Um, shout out to Alex and Home Mycology. We love you guys. Shout out to uh, Grimerica. You know, we, the list can go on and on and on. All of the friends of the show. Um, also, check out our website, mindescapepodcast.com. Uh, and we're going to be on Patreon. We're going to be adding a segment here after we get done with uh, Laird at patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast. And once again, please go to our new app called Indra's Web. If you don't know what uh, in, it's, I N D R A S and then web.org, um, you know, and it represents, you know, the idea of Indra's net is it's complex, but you can look into it. It kind of is an analogy for what we're trying to do by connecting all these open minds and stuff like that. So go check out that app and, um, you know, sign up. And once it's ready to go, you'll get an email. And uh, we talk about this kind of stuff on there. And uh, like I said, it, it'll be a fun, fun time. But uh, again, thank you, Laird. And uh, we'll definitely have you on again in the future. Great. Thanks a lot. I right. appreciate it. Bye. Thank you.